It was a, uh, a few months ago, earlier in the summer in June, some friends of ours uh, were traveling with Heather and me from Europe, and we had a 16-hour layover in Paris uh, one night. And so what do you do if you've got a 16-hour layover in Paris? You try to make your way uh, kind of down into the heart of the city. And we found ourselves in a little cafe across the street from Notre Dame there having dinner, and we really just wanted to enjoy uh, all of this. And so we decided to try and get those city bikes, those electric bikes, and we were just going to ride along the River Seine through uh, the city. Uh, doesn't that sound like a good idea? Small problem. I could not get those bikes unlocked to save my life. I just felt like a big dummy there trying to, trying to figure it out. And uh, fortunately, a couple of locals came by and kind of helped us understand the system and, and how it worked. And we were able to get the bikes unlocked. And we rode along the river. And we ended up at the uh, Eiffel Tower there. And it was beautiful. It was wonderful. It was just a, an amazing way to enjoy the richness of the city. Now, the passage that we are going to look at today is a lot like that. There is beauty, there is wonder, there is richness. The better we understand it, the better we understand Jesus. But it can feel to some of us like we are locked out and we can't go along for the ride. Have you ever, have you ever been telling you reading the Bible, you're like, I don't know what this means? Anybody ever had that? Just me? Okay. It's frustrating. But when you do understand what it means, it is exhilarating, it is empowering. And the reason we want to understand what God's Word says is because this is how we better know Jesus. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to, if you want to grab a Bible, grab a Bible. If you want to use a phone, use a phone. But let's go to this passage right here, Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. We're in week three of a series called Dear Church. And the reason we're calling it Dear Church is Revelation chapter 2 and 3 contain seven distinct personalized letters from Jesus to seven different churches. Now, this was all originally written down physically by a guy named John. He received this as a vision from Jesus, and he wrote what we call the book of Revelation. But we shouldn't think of it as a book. We should think of it as a letter. And inside of this massive letter, there are seven distinct letters that went to seven different churches. You could go and find those sites where they were located today. It's in modern-day Turkey. But when these churches each received the letter of Revelation, not only did they read Jesus' personal message to them, but Jesus' personal message to other churches too. They were all reading each other's mail in a very real way. This is a first century group text, and there's value in this. As a recap from week one, the better we understand Jesus' message to other churches, the better we'll understand his message to our church. And there's genius in the way that Revelation is constructed because each of these letters, when you see them together, they're woven together to help us see what his message is to his entire church. It's so profound, and I think that's really going to jump off the page today. And the big the big, rich, beautiful, I mean, message that with the treasure of Revelation is that no matter what we face, Jesus has overcome. And if we are in him, we overcome as well. And this is a recap from last week. We overcome by what he did, not by what we do. And if we trust in Jesus, we are in him. And because he has overcome, we will overcome as well. And the passage that we're going to read, these verses, Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, 
This, chat, this, this letter, it contains far more symbolism and imagery and what feels like coded reference, more uh, than, than the previous two letters combined. And if we don't understand it, it will feel like we're locked out and we can't go along for the, for the ride. And so this is what I want us to do. I just want us to read it together. And as I read it, would you take note, would you identify all the things that need to be clarified so that you can understand? Beginning in verse 12, it says this, to the angel in the church of Pergamum, right? These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And if you're wondering, well, okay, is the reference to Satan, is that symbolic? Well, the answer is no. It's a very real entity, very real person who is at work behind the scenes, trying to disrupt God's purposes, trying to disrupt the gospel movement. And I can completely understand that there might be some of us in this room, and you're thinking, Rick, I don't know how to take something like Satan seriously. I get it. I get where you're coming from. But I would just respond with this. You can't take Jesus seriously without taking Satan seriously because Jesus talked about him so seriously. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. I have a beautiful track record of faithfulness. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears... Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it. Who came to church today excited about getting a white stone? What is that about? White stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. I don't know what's on your list. I'll share with you some of the things that are on my list. I've got nine things that need to be unlocked so that we can enjoy and really appreciate this letter and take it to heart. And these nine things represent references to the Old Testament, references to government, cultural references. And so what we need to do is we're just going to tackle them one at a time so that we can unlock the richness of this passage. Are you ready? Did you have enough coffee? All right, here we go. Here's the first one. Sharp, double-edged sword. Well, this represents ultimate authority and that Jesus is the perfect judge. This would have quickly just resonated and naturally been understood by the citizens there in the city of Pergamum because their city, the, the, a double-edged sword represented was a symbol of the Roman proconsul. The Roman proconsul was based in and lived in their city. And that Roman official had the authority to execute enemies of the state. And the essence of this imagery is that Jesus has the right, he has the ability, he has the authority to say who stands with him and his kingdom and who stands against him and stands against his kingdom. And this is really big. Because if we're going to be people who submit to, we find our joy in submitting to his authority and we follow him and we follow his way, anytime we bump up, Anytime we bump up against people or teaching that goes against Jesus and his kingdom, we don't respond in the world's way. We don't respond in the way that comes naturally to us. We only respond in Jesus' way. It's going to be really important today. 
What is this about? Satan's throne. This is a reference to the network of pagan temples and that this city was the center of the imperial cult in Asia. I've talked about first century cities before. Some of them, you know, they had pagan temples like we have Quick Trips. And I'm not saying Quick Trip is pagan. My son works for Quick Trip. I'm all for that company. But they had these massive, ornate uh, temples to pagan gods. They dominated the cityscape and they dominated the culture. It was so prevalent. One commentator described Pergamum as Satan's hometown. But more than just this complex network of pagan temples, it was the center of the imperial cult in Asia. That meant that this city was responsible for imposing the law that you have to worship Caesar as God on earth. And that meant this city represented the greatest threat to everyone who wanted to say, no, 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 Jesus is king. Jesus is authority. This city represented the greatest threat to followers of Jesus who wanted to say, Jesus is Lord. Not that Caesar is Lord. Believe it or not, we need to decode this one right here. Name means more than just name. Name is bigger than just what a person is called by. It represents their character, the essence of who they are. We see this especially in the Old Testament. And this has implications for lots of things. Well, one of the things it has implications for is what does it mean to take God's name in vain? From a biblical perspective, you're not taking God's name in vain when you say his name in anger when your QB throws another pick six, right? Now, I'm not saying do that. That's not a good thing to do. But taking God's name in vain is this. Claiming Jesus while engaging in anything that contradicts who he is and what he's like. And there's a reference to this guy named Balaam. How many of you guys know about Balaam? Right? Some of us know about Balaam. For those of you who don't, this is a typo, I should say Numbers 22 through 31. You can read about him in the Old Testament book of Numbers 22 through 31. Balaam was a prophet. He was a widely kind of known and trusted and spiritual religious leader. Um, he was not Jewish. And he was not technically a false prophet. Anytime you describe someone with the word technically, you know there's a problem. And to really understand him, we got to go back in time to when the people of Israel were in between Egypt and the Promised Land. They were wandering through the wilderness, and kings in surrounding territories started to get nervous about this massive group of people that were getting close to their lands. And one of the kings that got scared was a man named Balak from Moab. And so what Balak did is he called down Balaam and he paid him to pronounce a curse over the people of Israel. But Balaam wouldn't do that. Balaam wouldn't give a message or speak for God in a way that contradicted what God said. He would only say what God told him to say. And God told him to, instead of doing that, to pronounce a blessing over the people of Israel and a curse over their enemies. And that made the king mad. And so in a very real way, Balaam is an example of integrity and courage. I mean, he gave the opposite message of what the king said. He defied the king. He gave a message that angered the king. He's taken his life in his own hands. So what makes Balaam a bad dude? Well, on the down low, on the down low, Balaam told the king, I cannot curse Israel, but I can tell you what to do to get them to bring a curse on themselves. I want you to round up some ladies from your towns and villages Send them to seduce the men of Israel, and then it'll be super easy, super easy to manipulate them 
and to worshiping your idols. That's exactly what happened. And God punished them for it. You could read it in, in Numbers chapter 25. Now, this is the tricky thing about a guy like Balaam. His public theology was superb. Everything that he said about God publicly was right. Every way that he represented the message of God publicly was right. And yet he used his influence to lure God's people into sexual sin and to worshiping false gods, all while not getting involved in any of it himself. It takes a tremendous amount of discernment. It takes a tremendous amount of discernment to recognize and respond appropriately to a spiritual leader like that. There's a reference to the Nicolaitans a couple of weeks ago. I joked that they're Cowboys fans. That's not true. We don't really know who the Nicolaitans were, but whoever they were, they were a faction that were across multiple cities, were trying to make their way into churches to get influence. And whoever they were, they taught things that were anti-gospel teaching, and they promoted anti-gospel behavior. And then in a response to them, Jesus talks about the sword of his mouth, which represents judgment. And this, for me, this catalyzes the natural question, what is it like for Jesus to come in and judge a church and judge people in a church? And I got to tell you, I don't know exactly. And I don't want to know, but the whole point of this letter is that we should never know. Because faithful followers of Jesus, it is our responsibility to respond to anti-gospel teaching or anti-gospel behavior whenever it pops up in a church. It's our responsibility. This is why over the past couple of weeks, we just tried to have honest conversations about the sin of rumors and racial tension because that's what love does. When we love each other and we love Jesus, we practice discernment. It's a gospel thing to do. It's a Jesus-honoring thing to do. There's a reference made to hidden manna. The most obvious way that this is being referenced is back to Exodus 13, back to the time the people of Israel in between Egypt, in between the promised land, God supernaturally provided food to sustain them. And there's probably more nuance in this reference, but the big idea is this. Jesus is the one who sustains us. Jesus is the one who's the source of eternal life. What is the white stone about? This is, this is a reference from their culture. I don't know if you know this, you probably do, but um, ancient cultures, they had ancient trials, they had jurors too. They had, and if you were called to jury duty in an ancient trial and you thought the person on trial was guilty, you would cast your vote with a black stone. And if you thought the person was innocent, you would cast your vote with a white stone. Also in this culture, when someone like a gladiator was granted their freedom, they were given a stone with their name inscribed on it. And also, the date in which their freedom began was inscribed on this stone. And in this culture, sometimes stones were used as an entry ticket. You were admitted to a prominent feast that they had in the city of Pergamum. And so what seems like a strange reference to us would have been profound and deeply encouraging to them. God sees you as innocent. You are free. And you are welcome to sit and feast at his table in heaven. And last, it's a reference made to a new name. 
which is a new identity, a new way of being, very likely a reference to Isaiah chapter 62, Isaiah 65. If you were here over the summer, I hope you remember our message series, Masterpiece. If you weren't here, I want you to go back and check out some of those messages because you need to know what God's mindset is towards you, what his heart is for you. If you are in Jesus, if you've trusted in Jesus by faith, you've given your allegiance to Jesus, you are made new. And God sees us as his perfect work of art. All right. So we've covered, we've unlocked what all of those symbols and references mean. Now we're ready to to ride through this passage and receive the richness and to be able to take it to heart. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to put the whole passage on the screen. I'm going to take out the symbolic references and I'm going to replace it with what the intended meaning was. Are you guys ready? Let's read it together. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the ultimate authority over life and death and the only one who's the perfectly just judge. I know where you live, where Satan is deceiving the majority of people through false religions and bankrupt ideologies. Yet you remain true to my character, the essence of who I am. You have faced tremendous difficulty and you've stayed true to me. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, and we don't really know his story, but whoever he was, this is a man who paid the ultimate price to maintain his devotion to Jesus. He was my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, we got to have a hard call, hard talk. we got to have a difficult conversation. You've got a beautiful track record of faithfulness, but there's some things going on that we have to talk about. There's some things I hold against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of religious leaders who accommodate and or encourage desires and behaviors that contradict devotion to and love for me. Likewise, you also have those who promote anti-gospel teaching and encourage anti-gospel behaviors. So repent. Because of that, repent. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and fight against them with my perfect judgment. If you love me, if you love each other, if you love them, you will hold to truth, you will hold to grace, and you will engage. You won't be passive. You won't sit back and say, that's not my problem. That's not my issue. You will engage those things because you love me and because you love them. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches To the one who is victorious, I will sustain you and give eternal life. I will give that person the status of righteous and a new identity, known only to the one who receives it. This is an incredible message. We need to to receive it. We need to see it in light of the others. And this is the third message in a row, third letter in a row from Jesus to a church that has an unexpected message. In week one, we, we learned the unexpected message was this. It's better to have no church than an unloving church. That's not our idea. That's Jesus. In week two, we learned this. It's better to sometimes let a church suffer than prevent it. The way of the cross is so different than the way of the world. But because of the hope of the resurrection, because of the new life that Jesus has provided and accomplished and proved through the resurrection, there is nothing that we can't face. And the unexpected message this week is this. It is possible for a church to stand up for Jesus while standing against Jesus. 
And this is a church with an amazing, beautiful track record of faithfulness. They were, they were true to him, and in other ways, they were not true to him. And the message today is this. It's possible to stand up for Jesus, and that's not necessarily the same thing as standing with him. It's a message they needed. It's a message we need. I believe this is a message that believers across this country need. Standing up for Jesus is not necessarily the same thing as standing with Jesus. And to really, I want to invite you to keep that in mind as we turn back to this chapter. I want to look at verse 14. He says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed the idols, and committed sexual immorality. What is going on in this church? That a reference back to Balaam is the way that they're going to accurately assess and diagnose and know how to respond to the sin that's taking place in their church. We don't know with certainty exactly what was happening in that church. And it's probably helpful to remember that um, biblically that sometimes references to sexual immorality or prostitution or adultery were metaphorical and not literal. They were metaphors used to help the people of God see the grievous nature of their sin. So is a reference to sexual sin, is it metaphorical or is it literal? Well, there's room to disagree. You're allowed to disagree. I happen to think it's a mixture of both. The city of Pergamum is pretty rich. And there's a pretty decent chance that a lot of Jesus' followers, the people in the churches, were making pretty good money engaging in trade and business. And to understand a difficult spot they were in, we just have to embrace something that we've never experienced. There was no line separating public life from religious life. Religion was mixed in with everything. They mixed business and religion all the time. And when trade guilds and business guilds would get together in the city of Pergamum, it often included celebrations of various pagan deities and food sacrifice to them and honoring them because they wanted pagan deities to, to bless their businesses. And so that meant that followers of Jesus who were business people were put in a hard spot. Do they stand for Jesus and stand with Jesus and refuse to participate, risking their business, risking their money, or do they go along? Because sometimes you just got to go along to get along. And any follower of Jesus who chose devotion to their business and their income over their devotion to Jesus was engaging in a kind of spiritual adultery. In some ways, I'm the exact wrong person to talk about this, right? I've never had to choose between my job and honoring Jesus. Like, honoring Jesus ensures job security for a pastor. <laughs> like, I don't know what it's like, but some of you do. And some of you have told me about it. Some of you have been in situations where your company or your boss or the people that you're doing business with puts you in a situation where you knew you had to choose between your Savior and playing it safe. And if you've ever been put in a situation like that, you can understand the allure. You can understand the appeal of a would-be pastor or a would-be religious teacher who would say, listen, you honor Jesus in so many areas of your life. It's no big deal if you participate here. Sometimes you have to go along to get along. Just do it. You can understand the appeal of that. But that would-be pastor, 
that would-be religious teacher would be elevating a desire for security that comes from money instead of the desire for security that comes in Jesus and what he has done for us. Any teaching or teacher that accommodates a desire that contradicts devotion to Jesus is standing against Jesus. Some version of this, some version of this was taking place in that church. We've talked about the Nicolaitans a couple of times. We don't exactly know who they were or what they taught. It seems most reasonable they were teaching some version of Gnosticism, which was very common in the first century and the second century. And if they were, it's very likely that they were teaching there's your spiritual life and there's your physical life. They don't necessarily touch. And so honor Jesus spiritually and do whatever you want physically because it's totally different things. Can you see the problem with that? They would teach, honor Jesus spiritually. You can do whatever you want sexually. It's a huge problem, huge problem to teach that and allow that into a church. And for those of you who think that I'm about to create a moment where I talk about, you know, God wants us to be heterosexual and not somewhere on the spectrum of LGBTQ, I'm not talking about that, at least not right now. Because heterosexual sins have been and continue to be a far bigger and more urgent issue for church people and people who want to follow Jesus. Like, if you take Jesus seriously, you can never think, well, there are the people, the good people sexually and the bad people sexually. If you take Jesus seriously, you got to recognize we are all sexual sinners who fall short of who God is and what he designed for us and what he wants for us. And Jesus one time said, listen, if you look at somebody with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. He took the standard higher and he took the standard deeper. We all fall short. We all need a Savior. And it's just nonsense. And it's just nonsense to say, just honor Jesus spiritually as if we would just love him and follow him with a part of our lives instead of our whole lives. We are to honor God with our bodies. And sometimes people call this room the sanctuary, and you can, that's fine. But it's not a sanctuary, it's a room. If you are in Christ, if you've trusted in him, the Holy Spirit of God is inside of you. You are the sanctuary. Your body is a temple. And because you carry the Spirit of God with you wherever you go, wherever we go, we honor God with our bodies. And I'm going to say something that's going to sound provocative. If you don't listen to the next 20 seconds, you're going to think I'm crazy or a heretic. Do you promise to listen for at least the next 20 seconds? God did not design you just to be heterosexual. That's so small and naive. God designed us to honor him with our bodies. And God designed sex to be enjoyed exclusively inside of the covenant of marriage. And that's two people who are united together for life. One man and one woman. And they mutually submit to each other. The God's idea is so beyond the way that our world thinks about it, though so beyond the way we think about it naturally, a man is to say to his, to his wife, my body doesn't belong to me, it belongs to you. You have authority over my body. And a wife says to her husband, my body doesn't belong to me, it belongs to you. You have authority over my body. And together we honor God and what he has created. And sex is intended to be serving, celebrating, and delighting in the other inside the covenant of marriage. 
And anything outside of that is, is opposite of what or contrary to what God taught. And anytime we reduce sex to desire or behavior, we're reducing it to something so much smaller than what God intended. And we're twisting it into something that could be life-taking instead of life-giving. And sometimes we just don't do a good job of thinking about it well. And if we don't think about it well, we're not going to talk about it well. And I wouldn't expect you to know about this. This is kind of a big fight right now in the church world. There's a big debate. There's a big hullabaloo going along right now in the world of pastors. I know some of you know about it because you asked us about it. You want to, you want to know what our response is. But right now in the, in the church world, in the pastoral world, there's a huge debate about this. And it really surrounds one of my pastoral heroes, a man named Andy Stanley. He is the pastor of a church near Atlanta. It's one of the largest churches in the country. He has tremendous influence with millions of people in our country and around the world. And I love this man. I deeply respect this man. I admire him. For 33 years, he has been a trusted influence in my life. And let me get specific and tell you why I love this pastor so much. Because this is a pastor who is committed to loving people and moving towards the messes. And whatever is required to love somebody, let's love them no matter what. I want to be like that too. I love this pastor, I deeply admire him and his commitment to lead his church, to be a church where everyone is welcome, even people who disagree, even people who disagree with God's design for our bodies and sexuality, that they are welcomed and can be a part of that church too. I want our church to be like that. Even if you think all the stuff that I said about our bodies and sexuality is bonkers, even, even if, if you were just like, I can't get on board with that, I'm so glad you're here. It is an honor and a privilege to welcome you here today. No matter how you might define yourself with your sexual identity or what your lifestyle is, that we're so glad that you're here. We want to be friends with you, and it would mean the world to us if your experience here would help you catch a glimpse of the truth, goodness, and beauty of Jesus. I love and deeply admire this pastor for his commitment to serve parents who, whether they're teenagers or they're adult kids, have come out to them and told them that they're somewhere on the continuum of LGBTQ+. I deeply love and admire his commitment to be on the team with parents to help them love their kids well, to stay connected to their kids, and to help their kids be connected to Jesus. Not only do we love and admire his ministry, we have a ministry like that here in our church, and some of you have benefited from it. Some of you might need to benefit from it. We would mean the world to us if we could help you love your kids well, stay connected to your kids, and help your kids be connected to Jesus. So why in the world is there a controversy? Because people are asking, is it not just that, but are you saying, Andy Stanley, that it doesn't really matter what we do sexually as long as we follow Jesus spiritually? And they're saying, he might be doing this. And you might be wondering, Rick, why in the world would we talk about another pastor or another church? Why would we do that here? I've got three reasons why. Number one, the kind of conversation that's taking place is the exact kind of conversation was supposed to happen in the church at Pergamum. There are no new problems. There's nothing new under the sun. Number two, this is a pastor who I have quoted a lot. 
And long before I was the pastor here at this church, our church was using resources from Andy Stanley across numerous ministries. Last year, I took our staff to a conference at his church, and some of you are wondering, and some of you need to know, has our church changed? Does our pastor teach something different than what we thought we were supposed to believe about God's Word? Here's the third reason. Um, I am not a big deal in the pastoral world. No one knows who I am. I'm a nobody. That's kind of nice. It's safe being unknown. But two times, two times in my pastoral ministry, after preaching on a Sunday morning, I got an email, once an email on a Monday morning, a pastor who worked with Andy Stanley, basically his right-hand man, emailed me and said, hey, I watched your sermon online, and I just appreciated what you said about XYZ. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Never saw that coming. This happened after being pastor here a couple of years ago. I got a, somebody calls our church office, staff from his church called our church office, wanted to talk to me. I thought I was being pranked. Got on the phone and staff from the church said, hey, we watched your sermon. We want to know, do we have permission to quote you? And I said, well, I've been ripping Andy Stanley off for 20 years. He can quote me anytime he wants. <laughs> in the off chance, in the off chance that he or someone from his church would hear this sermon today, if I could be a friend to him from a distance, if I could be an encouragement to him from a distance, the way he has been for me for decades, I'd love that. And so if Andy were here or if he hears, this is what I'd say. I think there are a lot of people who are taking shots at you and they're being judgmental. They're not practicing discernment. They like trying to hurt you. It is not motivated by love. So persist. Stay engaged. Keep having public conversations so that everybody can understand exactly what it is that you mean. You are the king of clarity. You have taught thousands of pastors. You've taught me how to preach with clarity so people can understand God's word so they can better know Jesus. You're the king of clarity. But some of us, me included, some of us, me included, feel like we're not getting clarity right now. And we just need you to be a little more clear and let us know, are you saying that for some people it's unworkable and unsustainable to honor God with our bodies? And for some people it doesn't, as long as they claim Jesus, it doesn't really matter what they do sexually. I don't think that's what he's saying. But Andy, if that is what you mean, it would break my heart to say you're doing this. And if that's what he meant, it would break my heart to have to say to you, this is a pastor who I love. We can't stand with him because what he would be teaching then would stand against Jesus. So why are we doing this? Because Jesus wrote to the church of Pergamum, and he said, it's your responsibility. Faithful followers of Jesus, it is your responsibility. Because, you, because we love him, and because we love each other, that whenever there is anti-gospel teaching or anti-gospel behavior being promoted and encouraged, that we engage. We don't tolerate sin because the consequences of sin are intolerable. And maybe, maybe it would help if we reframed it like this. We don't tolerate anti-gospel teaching and anti-gospel behavior because the consequences of that are so intolerable. And I invite you to go back to it and remember what we talked about in week one. Discernment is saying, this is wrong and I, I can't stand with you and I, and I can't participate with you in this because I love you. 
and because I love others and because I love Jesus. The judgment says, this is wrong and I'm against you because I don't like you and I'm afraid of you and I think I'm better than you. We want to be people of discernment, not people of judgment. So if you're thinking, okay, Rick, how, how, okay, how do we do that? Remember our values as a church. They're really expressions of the gospel. Take truth seriously. Give grace relentlessly. And if you're thinking, okay, uh, how do I do that? Read the gospels. Read about Jesus. Read the gospel of John and see how he is with people and how loving he is with people even when, even when he calls out sin. And you're thinking, Rick, I just, just give me like a handhold. Just give me one thing to do. Make it a little easier. There are no microwave settings for the transformation of your soul. There is no microwave setting for the transformation of your soul. Be with Jesus. Read about Jesus. Receive from Jesus. And then share that with others. A few years ago, another church in another state, I got to see one of the best examples of this ever. There was a men's group. Uh, they met uh, once a week early in the morning at a local restaurant, and there was a guy in their group who was really flirting with blowing up his life and his marriage through some of his sexual sin. And the men in the group, they were trying to get this guy to, to repent and change course. He wasn't doing it, and they asked me to come, hoping that maybe I could be helpful. And I knew this guy. I knew him really well. And he knew that he was wrong. He was just stubborn. And I sat there and I watched these men, guy after guy, man after man, went around the table and they weren't mad at him. They didn't act like they were better than him. They weren't afraid. They loved him and they loved his family. And a guy would share and he would just get honest and say, this is, this is how I've sinned. This is how sin has wrecked my life. And it's by the grace of God that I've been forgiven and things have been restored. And guy after guy would go around the table and share that. And they're basically begging this guy to repent and trust and follow Jesus. Not every experience at church is going to be like that. But Jesus has called his people, his church, whenever there is anti-gospel teaching or anti-gospel behavior being promoted, to engage. Because a commitment to truth, commitment to grace, commitment to love, because we love him and we love each other. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will sustain you and give eternal life. I will give that person the status of righteous and a new identity, not only to the one who receives it. This has been our drumbeat. This is our thesis for this series, knowing the truth doesn't change anything. Submitting to the truth changes everything. And I want to remind us that truth is not simply an abstract idea. Truth is a person. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life.